Yeah, the well, it's it's now two thousand three hundred miles because the Guinness Book of Records told us they defined the Northwest Passage um, by two quite strict points. So uh, an extra three hundred miles, which is uh, always welcome, I suppose. Uh, and yeah, as you say, the biggest risk there is always the ice. Hello, everyone. This is Carol presenting the Ultra Peps podcast, episode nineteen. So today I am with Mark Agnew to talk about his expedition, the Northwest Passage 2021, the expedition of our time. Now let me introduce Mark a little bit more and uh, his expedition. Mark is from Scotland and is passionate about endurance sports. He's an elite rower and adventurer, now based in Hong Kong, working as a journalist for the South China Morning Post, covering extreme sports and outdoor sports. As a sea rower, he is building his new adventure, rowing the Northwest Passage. So the Northwest Passage is this 2,000 miles Arctic route linking the Atlantic and the Pacific Ocean. Through a sea of ice, Crossing the Northwest Passage will probably be the last great first achievable only through human power. So Mark is part of a team of 15 rowers united to make the impossible possible and make history. So this attempt is also sadly made possible by the melting ice cover in the Arctic, which is a direct cause of global warming as we all know. So the expedition has the mission to document the impact of uh, climate change in this area. And during this uh, expedition, a dedicated crew will make a documentary about the challenge itself, the physical and the mental aspect of the challenge, and also about the climate change impact survey that um, the team will be conducting. So now it's uh, time to ask uh, Mark about this expedition and the fascinating journey waiting. Hi there, thanks very much for having me. No, thank you so much for taking your time to talk about your journey and your exploration project. Yeah, well, I don't need much encouragement to talk about it. I'm sure I've told my uh, my fiance is probably rolling her eyes having to listen to the same stories over and over again. <laughs> oh yeah, I think, well... <laughs> So for me, it's so fascinating because I can really relate and I really need to talk about expedition nowadays, you know, the, the situation with COVID and everything like makes us in a very gloomy mood. So I'm very, very excited to talk about something very positive. actually. Yeah, definitely having a light at the end of the tunnel on coronavirus, like something big to aim for has been very helpful in a difficult year. <laughs> Absolutely. So we, we really need to dream and then work hard to, to make our project possible, actually. So the Northwest Passage. So, wow, this is an amazing project. So you're aiming at rowing the Northwest Passage. Well, you and your team. Next. Yeah, year. Well, yeah that's the idea. June 2021, maybe July 2021. It really depends when the ice breaks up. Unfortunately, it breaks up earlier every year, uh, but uh, we're expecting around June or July. Yeah, so, and I, I was just uh, reading and reading again, and I was like confused about uh, the, the, the project itself, like two, 
thousand miles. Two thousand yeah. miles roaring, breaking your way in the ice, risking to get stuck probably in the middle of the ice because I guess those I can understand how the weather works there and that it can just trap you. As the ice Yeah, well the yeah, the well, it's it's now two thousand three hundred miles because the Guinness Book of Records told us they defined the Northwest Passage um, by two quite strict points. So uh, an extra three hundred miles, which is uh, always welcome, I suppose. Uh, and yeah, as you say, the biggest risk there is always the ice. You know, the the only reason it's possible is because the ice is disappearing for longer and longer every year. It's it's gone for three or four months now, but that doesn't mean there aren't icebergs. And uh, in particular, growlers, which are just like chunks of ice that break off icebergs uh, below the surface. We won't even be able to see them unless we're incredibly vigilant. And those are the most dangerous things. Um, and of course, there'll be huge layers of pack ice off, hopefully in the distance. But if the wind or the weather changes at any time, it could be suddenly upon us. And that's why we have to be incredibly vigilant about the weather making sure we have a uh, experienced weatherman on the end of a phone to tell us what to expect and unlike other ocean rows uh we'll we may have to react quickly and suddenly get into shore or get into a bay and put an anchor down uh, to avoid being pushed by the ice or trapped by the ice or, or or forced against a cliff so there's a lot of variables um which uh, I guess, you know, people don't necessarily know about ocean rowing, but in, in something else, like if you're crossing the Atlantic or, or an open body of water, a storm can come and there's nothing you can do about it, but there's also not much that can go wrong. You, you, you can get pushed 20, 40 kilometers in the wrong direction, off course, um, and there's nothing to hit. You just have to, you know, deal with it. You probably put out a sea anchor, which is this big, enormous underpower, underwater parachute that keeps you head onto the waves. You don't capsize and you just, just sit there and read and get bored. But in the Northwest Passage, you don't have the luxury of going 40k off course because 40k's to your right is a cliff and 40k's to your left is the sea ice. So it's all about being vigilant for the weather and, as you said, <laughs> the ice, which is uh, ever present. Yes, and just this is this is one of the for me it's one of the most uh, scariest thing actually. So, and now just to have a small historical background of this actually, because we talked offline about these stories is as fascinating as well as the, the story of Mount Everest with those heroes and and those legendary very much um, well tells about it and uh, expeditions to, to just reach the summit. So this Northwest Passage is like, wow, we can see already the, the Vikings venturing yeah. here. Well, yeah, I mean, when you read the history of the Northwest Passage, it just reads like a massive list of all the most famous explorers in Europe, everybody from Captain Cook, Francis Drake and uh, that's part of the thing that makes it so so appealing to me. Uh, there's been there's rarely anything which has been such a subject of exploration so specifically for so long. Well, uh, the Vikings they they definitely went there um, and uh, you know they inhabited Greenland, put settlements there, but they weren't so much specifically looking for the Northwest Passage. They sort of accidentally came across the entrance. But it, the first people to really look for it specifically were in the first Elizabethan age. They wanted to, when the spice trade was, was building up around the world and the Portuguese were uh, 
getting very rich off going to Southeast Asia and taking the clove and the nutmeg, Britain decided maybe there's a shorter route. Maybe we don't have to go all the way around South Africa or all the way around South America. So they thought they'd go over North America and find what they called the Northwest Passage. So the first person to really look properly was a guy called Martin Frobisher, who was famous for having defeated the Spanish Armada. Um, and I cannot imagine going to the Arctic uh, in those tiny medieval boats, Tudor boats, <laughs> with uh, probably without shoes or, or any, not even like taking any local knowledge off the Inuits. Just it would have been miserable, and it's quite fascinating that they even survived. And then uh, one of Martin Frobisher's peers, one of the most famous explorers of all time, uh, Sir Francis Drake, he tried. Uh, and then it sort of went into the doldrums for a while, but it got picked back up again uh, by Captain Cook. He, he, the last thing he tried to do was find the Northwest Passage by the other way, over the top of Alaska. And then uh, on his way back, he, he got killed in Hawaii. Um, but they really took off as in the British imagination in the 19th century. Mm, I feel that is cool. when... They, they, actually, talking about this, I saw, I saw uh, somewhere that a price was offered to the one yeah. who would find the right uh, route, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not exactly sure when that uh, reward was put up, but it, it was definitely up there for a long time and people just couldn't find it. They were going up there and they were getting stuck in the ice, they were dying. And in the 19th century in particular, Britain started sending a lot of explorers, in particular one called uh, Sir John Franklin. Uh, he went three times on his first one he uh, ran out of food and they ended up eating their boots. Uh, the leather on their boots was the only food they had, which made him famous. And that was quite a cool story in the Victorian era. They liked their kind of stoic, <laughs> hardcore explorers who um, uh, would do something as uh, like stiff up a lip and just eat your boots. Uh, it was probably because he was very disorganized and uh, not properly prepared, but that didn't matter for the story. And that's when it really went bananas in the, in, in the psyche of the British public. And, uh, Franklin went up another two times and on his third time he, he never came back and the Navy sent expedition after expedition to send it, to find him and then his wife started sending expeditions up and the whole all the newspapers for years afterwards gripped trying to find out what had happened to uh, uh, Sir John Franklin and that accidentally the end that was like the most successful period of actually mapping it they were looking for him but they ended up mapping it and it was finally found in the 1860s by a guy called John Ray uh, who at the same time found out what happened to John Franklin. They all went a bit mad. Uh, we now know because there was lead in their food. And uh, they ate. E and then they, when they ran out of food, they ate each other. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, in the Victorian era, when they're colonizing the world and trying to, quote, unquote, like, civilize the savages, it didn't look very good to have their most famous explorer engage in cannibalism. So they sort of kept it under the rug. They, there's a statue in in um, in London of John Franklin, who's opposite Captain Scott, and it says the man who found the Northwest Passage, even though he didn't find the Northwest Passage, and the prize that you were talking about ultimately went to John Ray, um, which is uh, which is a bit funny uh, retelling of history in hindsight. But uh, even after that, people st they still they only found a, a gap which they knew could make it through. But the first person to actually navigate all the way through was Roald Amerson in 1903 to 1906. And he, he's the first person to the South Pole, the first person to fly over the North Pole, one of the world's greatest explorers ever. And uh, what is particularly interesting is contrasting his expedition with ours, because he, he made it all the way through with a motor and a sail, but he would get 
about two or three weeks uh, through and then it would freeze, the sea would freeze around him and he was stuck for another 11 and a half months. And then 11 and a half months later, he'd have two or three weeks and then frozen again. And then 11 and a half months later, he would get a little bit of a window. So it took him over three years. And then in contrast, you fast forward to 115 years later when global warming has wreaked havoc on the Arctic, the Northwest Passage is now open for three or four months and we can row through. It's uh, a terrifying contrast to contemplate. But uh, even, even, after, even after that, the Ranulph Fines was the first person to go through in an open craft. Uh, everybody, everybody who is anybody in the adventure world has written their name at one point in the Northwest Passage. Yeah, it's fantastic also that we still have, we still have room for exploration in this world. And this is still, yeah, it still exists, actually, Do, being the first to, to accomplish something. This is still possible nowadays. So this is also fascinating. Yeah, well, uh, in our mind, because of the history of it, because it has been the site of so many firsts, you know, first people to find the entrance, the first people to find the navigatable route, the first person through, the first person through an open craft, et cetera, et cetera. Um, that makes this the final chapter, which is sort of the last great first on earth. Uh, there's no first in my mind that really is as storied, is it? You could pick two dots on a map and be the first person to get through them, but it's not one that is so obvious a route that people have been exploring and mapping for centuries but on the flip side although there are firsts left to be had this is only possible because of global warming you know this wasn't a first that would have been possible 10 even 10 years ago somebody tried in 2013 and the ice didn't clear so they they, they weren't successful um, and maybe that will happen to us but the way that things are going the amount of the ice is disappearing it, it is it is not possible uh, it, it, it's unlikely that we'll uh, will be stopped when you when you think of it like that i hope to be the first person to row the northwest passage then the last person because it freezes over again and the world returns to its uh uninhabited uh, un, un like complicated state before humanity started have, ha wreaking havoc so there are plenty of firsts out there in our mind this is the last great first but it is you know it's a balancing act between excitement and human endeavor and dreaming big and also acknowledging that it is uh, because because of global warming and that's sad uh, yeah, but with I that like, you know i like this yeah, side of go. the project the global sorry <laughs> i like because i really and like love this idea of uh, just associating this project to the climate change uh, awareness raising and showing mm -hmm. and you you perfectly mentioned in uh, your facebook page that you and your team will offer a very real view of how it is without the narratives, without the drama narratives and to be as objective as, as possible. Let them, let them inspire people like to think about it as it is. Yeah. Well, yeah, there's two aspects to our sort of climate change awareness um, campaign is one is just the simple message. You know, it can be difficult to relate to the idea that polar bears are disappearing and um, that the ice is reducing at 12% a year per year compared to 1981 data, blah, 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 robots. But it's like, we shouldn't even be here. You know, it's as simple as that. 10 years ago, we couldn't have been here. 10 years later, we, uh, you might not have any ice over the North Pole in summer. It's that simple. And it's a very easy visual thing to get your head around and get worried about. 
but then also we're also collecting data for two professors uh, a professor at new new york university and his wife uh we'll be collecting uh, we'll be putting sort of a ten uh not a tennis ball a basketball sized thing in the water once a day which uh, will collect the depth the temperature and the salination levels will tell them where the water is coming from and uh if the source of the water is different to where it was before you know it could now be melted melted land ice it could be melted sea ice it could be currents that are changing and bringing them up from the tropics which uh, would actually be a disaster but is a possibility so uh yeah we've really got two prongs of it and that that is really valuable data it's very rare that you'd get somebody without a motor moving through such a large segment to um, collect data over such a long period of time so it, it's uh you know a privilege to be there but we're obliged to exercise that privilege in a like a responsible manner and uh, actually do something significant with uh, with our time up there yes and uh, did you get uh, did you get uh, proper like not a training but instruction how to do those things i think it should be extremely complicated to manipulate those uh, those uh, probes and do the uh, we haven't had the training we haven't had the training yet i've spoken to the guys at new york university uh, but uh, I mean, with coronavirus times, it's tough. There's a couple of guys who are based in New York, but as far as they tell us, it, it is very easy. They oh. just say that sort of a, they'll give us a they'll give us a preset big ball and just ask us to press a button and put it in the water once a day, and then uh, we won't have to process the data or anything. Just at the end of it, we hand it over to them and they all download it. Okay, I really, really want to relay all what you have about the climate change and the global warming. Mm. A cause that just this occupy my time now and my mind, you know, everything I do, it's like climate change oriented. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, I am waiting for that very much. So now talking about the logistics, that's a, fasc that's a fascinating expedition in terms of logistics as well. This is probably also part of uh, the challenge, probably, from, from preparing the vessel. Or the, I, I don't know if you can call that a boat. How do you call that? The, a boat, right? Yeah, I think you call it an ocean rowing boat. We're actually planning on going in three boats. Uh, some One of the teams that have tried in the past, they spent a, a lot of time. They did need to haul up onto a beach, wasting a lot of energy. So we think if we have a group of people, we can haul one boat up and then the other boat up quite quickly. Um, so uh, yeah, boats, plural. And uh, yeah, first things first, it's been designed by our captain and uh, a former Aston Martin uh, engineer. Uh, and it is different from ocean rowing boats. Most ocean rowing routes, you're going with the prevailing winds. So increasingly people have been designing them so they're quite good at being blown in the right direction. They're light and, uh, uh, and have a big front cabin that pushes you in the right direction. But um, we, don't, we won't have a prevailing wind per se. It could be coming from any direction at any time. So it, it, it's much more aerodynamic so you don't get pushed on the side. And, and in particular, it's much thicker so it reinforces Kevlar. So we, if we do hit ice, or when we hit ice, I should rather say, uh, it doesn't get damaged and also it keeps us a little bit warmer. Uh, but they're brand new designs, ice class expedition uh, boats, they're called. And uh, we have to thank our, our captain, Levin Brown, for that. And will you, will you be sleeping in that, uh, in that uh, boat all, all the time? Yes. Well, yeah, the, these ocean rowing boats, as with all ocean rowing boats, they're sort of they're quite long and they've got two bulbs in either end which is just big enough maybe to sit up in um and in the middle they have three rowing seats and two of you sleep or two of you row and two of you sleep or two of you row and you switch and you switch and you just row for two hours sleep for two hours row for two hours sleep for two hours 
all day, all night until the completion of the, the, the journey. Sure. Um, although in this one with uh, more variables, you know, there is a possibility that we end up on anchor and then you, nobody's rowing and you just sleep or, or even pulling up on a beach perhaps if uh, the ice is particularly bad and then, then we'll have some tents. But in theory, if the weather is good all the time, we will be rowing. We will always have somebody rowing and that, that is... That is challenging, but you, you can get into that kind of routine quite quickly, but uh, at best 90 minutes sleep over two months is, uh, is one of the real challenges, especially when it's light 24-7, so even in the 90 minutes you get off, it's not quality sleep. Oh yeah, I can hear you that. I can really hear you here. <laughs> so, but uh, talking to that, so let me go back to the beginning of the logistical route finding and how long do you expect to be in that boat actually so so let's go back to the beginning how did you how did you set the route actually uh well it in one sense it's quite easy because there is the northwest passage there is a couple of ways through it you go over one island or under one island or or, or left and right of it but those decisions will really be made for, for us on on the day when when we find out what the ice conditions are it may well be that one over the top of one island there's more ice so we go south of it or, the, or, or vice versa. Uh, but aside from that, the, it's quite obvious when you look at a map and you can just run your finger in through and say, oh yeah, this is the ideal route that you take. Having said that, uh, we, we start at Pond Inlet, which is the top of Baffin Island opposite, opposite Greenland. Head through the Northwest Passage, we were gonna stop at the, the mouth of the Mackenzie River, but uh, the Guinness Book of Records told us that they define it as Point Barrow, which is about 300 miles along. Uh, uh, along through the Beaufort Sea and uh, we'll stop there instead which uh, uh, is it, that, that's a bit more open sea that's you're out of the archipelago and uh, there's uh, just the open sea to the North Pole so it will be different what is, uh, the, quickest, what is the quickest time you expect to, to, to achieve that? The that quickest, is I mean, so like... much it's so, it's so much dependent on weather um, like if it was freakish where if it was like the wind behind us the whole time and uh, there was no ice then it could be like five six weeks but we're saying two months mm -hmm. yeah. you know compare it to the atlantic the atlantic is three thousand miles so 700 miles longer uh, and the prevailing wind is generally always in the right direction and the record for that is 29 days yeah, yeah. Uh, so we're hoping we will probably take twice as long as that uh, with despite being 700 miles shorter. So well, like in uh, the all the 8,000 uh, peak expedition, Mr. Mr. Weather will be one of the key mm. of this expedition, I guess. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, there's just no, no getting around it, but there's also no, no use getting too worried about something that is completely out of your control if you want to. If you want to operate in the outdoors, uh, you'll have a short-lived career if you let the weather get under your skin. And I guess also it's all, also all about uh, adjusting to, to the situation and quick, quick decision-making is also... Yeah. This, the, the mental training you need for such, a, for such an expedition is also big, I think, because you don't need to dwell on the situation. And it's like, it's like a bit like climbing for me, actually. I have learned a lot about adjusting yourself, following the weather, taking decisions, and not going, not thinking too much on, on what you have uh, decided, actually. Yeah, definitely. I mean, mental training is, 
huge part of it. I think physical training is mental training to an extent. You know, the rowing machines are very, very, very boring and also very, very tough. So you just get used to being bored and being physically knackered, which in turn is uh, is mental training. Um, and then li- likewise is drawing on past experiences and uh, getting power from all the times that you've you've been in the same or similar situations before. A lot of guys in our boats have world records for rowing across the Atlantic. Uh, so they have an abundance of uh, situations to call on and know that they are okay in similar situations. And uh, um, myself, I've, uh, I've tried to row the Atlantic twice and both times been rescued. And particularly after the second time, I feel like I've got this sort of mental drive, which uh, I never felt before. I mean, I, was, I would have said if you'd asked me before my second one, yeah, I'm a very, very determined person. And I still think I was, but now I've got this real iron um, that I just never, never felt before. Um, so I'm going to be hoping that I can draw on that in the midst of grim Arctic. Yeah. And in a team, how, how will you cope with decision-making actually? Do you have a team leader who will decide like in every expedition, we should like have a, an imp- like explicit, uh, protocol for decision-making or like what is yeah. going on? In- well, every ship that's ever every ship in history has had a captain. So we'll try not to break the mold too much. We'll have Levin, who is our overall captain, and then each boat will have a captain who can uh, make individual choices. Levin will select them, um, whoever those captains are, but uh, I don't know who they'll be at the moment. There's a whole bunch of people who I'd be happy to follow with their mammoth amount of experience in the military or, or sea or ocean rowing. So we'll see, but you've got to make sure that you... Uh, you're very clear about who's making the decision to begin with. You can have a discussion and you can have an input, but ultimately the decision rests with the captain and a decision that's backed by the crew, right or wrong, is better than the uh, right decision not backed by the crew. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is, this, is, this is one of the most uh, difficult aspects for me also in expedition, like uh, the decision-making process and the leadership of the, of the, full, uh, the full thing. Mm. That's a bit tricky. Together with, of course, the, the, because the body is so tired, the mind is so tired, we, we cannot just analyze things the way we do now. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, I think in sports psychology, there's a, the, the forming of uh, a team is uh, uh, forming, storming, norming, performing. So forming gets together, storming. There's always a period of adjustment where people work out their roles, maybe a couple of uh, people who consider themselves the alphas start like trying to fight for that spot, but then it, it starts uh, uh, norming, um, which everybody settles into their role, finds their place. It, very unconsciously, I don't, I, I'm not saying that at the end of the first period people then have a vote, but you find out where you stand and uh, the group settles and then performing. So it, it could take a, a few days, and, um, and and that's just something you've got to accept. And I think particularly because we haven't had as much time as a team together as we would like uh, given coronavirus and the world spread across the world but uh, I'm, I'm fully anticipating that period and, um, but with the amount of experience on board um, everybody knows that you have to be humble in the outdoors and uh, your ego will get spanked pretty quickly if you go in there beating your chest uh, by, by the arctic because nobody's bigger than the the, the power of nature mm-hmm. uh, but nonetheless within ourselves we'll have to have that period but even within that, we'll already know who our captain is, who will have been picked by Levin. So uh, 
it's about trusting the process and trusting the people around you. So how many, yeah, how many people will you have talking about those boats and the captains? How many people will you have in one boat? Five per boat. Five per boat. I, I already read that, but I wanted to make sure. Five people per boat. And you will carry yeah. your own supplies within each boat? Yeah, so we sort of have um, a dehydrated food which we're looking at at the moment who to go with and uh, you pour boiling water in and 10 minutes later it's it's ready to go uh, plus snacks and and other protein powders and, and everything but it's all about keeping it light and it can be quite nice it doesn't have to be bad i, I quite like those dehydrated meals not the dehydrated ones the uh the yeah the dehydrated i have to remember that people don't realize but apparently there is a difference between dehydrated food and free dried freeze dried food and freeze dried food tend not tends not to be so nice oh yeah okay. some can be very yummy do you have a nutritionist preparing the meal like calculating how much calories you will need how much fat you will need how much carbs you will need uh not at the moment at the moment uh, one of the guys is taking the lead on the food and he's talking to a a lot of different people um Uh, about it particularly food companies he's been in contact with this uh, with one guy who's got an OBE and an RGS medal for being a cook on various expeditions which was funny because he sort of linked me in and said hey this guy he's a cook he's called Nigel maybe you could speak to him and I said oh I know Nigel he was the cook on my dad's expeditions when he was an explorer in the 60s <laughs> oh wow yeah yeah this is I think for me also on expedition the, the, the one of the most important thing is the food actually this can also smash your, smash your expedition, actually. If, you, yeah. if your body cannot recover well, because roaring is so physical. Yeah, well, it's not just, um, food is not just fuel. It's also like morale. morale. A warm meal, a warm meal can go a long, long way. Mm. Not just in terms of replenishing your carbs and giving you protein to recover. It, it goes a long way to making you feel a lot better. And when you feel better, you can push harder. And it was Napoleon who said a, a, an army marches on its stomach. Yeah, but yeah, it, this is also, some people try to underestimate, not try, this is underestimated, the role of nutrition in, in those extreme sports, actually. And especially yeah. when it's cold, you will lose, you will lose ex like a lot, a lot of, uh, of, uh, of uh, fat. Yeah, well, in the Atlantic, the, most people say uh, about 6,000 calories a day. It's worked out on how heavy you are. I was on 6,000 calories a day. Uh, but it's very difficult to eat that now. Even with, with it, it's like freeze dry this and put powder that. It's just when you're tired, you just want to go to sleep and you can't be bothered to make the food. And even if you could be bothered, it's just so much to actually like eat. Uh, so I, I'm sure that I, even in the few days I was out there, I was already short of the 6,000 aim. Mm. But in the Atlantic, when you've got the additional aspect of just like being cold, your body burns calories to staying warm. So it's going to be vital um, for so many reasons. Yeah, and the fat, But, uh, the fat supply. Yeah. For example, when I was climbing, uh, the, when I'm climbing at 1,000 meter peak, the, the fat, the fat, I can never, uh, I can never refill the fat enough. So I am eating really like, I'm eating pure fat actually, fat and oil. Yeah, I think that when Ranoff Fines and Mike Stroud were the first people to walk across Antarctica, they were just eating like lumps of butter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, because actually when the body is, like, as you said, 6,000 calories, if, if the muscles cannot recover those calories, then 
then they will your body starts to eat your muscles mm, exactly and that, that, that's problematic because your heart is a muscle if you're that starving it doesn't differentiate it doesn't say okay let's start with your biceps and then do your quads it just starts to eat all muscles and that's where um i mean in extreme cases which we will probably never get to but if you are starving one of the reasons you die is cardiac arrest because your body just doesn't discriminate and start eating all the muscles it has which includes heart so I am, I am really, I am really exciting to to follow all those uh, those uh, aspects of this exploration, actually, and so mm. so much more, actually, so much more. So, how do you prepare physically? I, I saw pictures of you uh, rowing in uh, in Hong Kong, actually. Yeah, well, uh, there's one of the best ways is coastal rowing. Um, the best, I mean, the best training is getting into the ocean rowing boat that we'll be going in. But uh, that's not possible for me at the moment because it's in the UK and I'm here. But it is the second best is coastal rowing. Coastal rowing is sort of like the boats you would see maybe racing in the Olympics, but they're wider. Uh, so they can deal with a, a bit of waves and a bit of chop. And in Hong Kong, I'm really lucky that uh, it's very accessible to do. So I can take it out and go for long rows of the weekend just around some of the islands and uh, the videos that I put out recently, you might be talking about, we, there was a round the island race and that, and that was uh, awesome fun. There was a two meter swells coming in um, at one point, and that is pretty perfect training for uh, for ocean rowing, getting used to that, and also a great mental training because 44k pushing yourself really hard. By the end, your knees hurt and your back hurts, and your hands are covered in blisters, and you keep pushing. And that's exactly the kind of experience that I was talking about before that you bank, and then later you can draw on. Um, and every time you do one, you get a little bit mentally stronger, just in the same way that every time you do a rep in the gym, your legs get a little bit stronger. And uh, that's perfect. But aside from that, people would be surprised about how many, how much emphasis I put on weight training instead of rowing, mm -hmm. because uh, I think it's all about injury prevention. I do so much single leg stuff because the boats are so cramped. If your back goes in the middle of the Northwest Passage, there's very little chance for recovery you can't take a rest longer than your two hour break and you can't stretch out um it's unfair to say oh guys my back's gone so i'm gonna miss the next one because you know they, they need somewhere to lie down as well so it's all about injury prevention single leg stuff getting your bum strong to support your lower back getting your glutes strong to support your lower back um and then also weights are important because those boats are so heavy i mean they'll be hundreds of kilograms heavy and then in the wind it will feel like you're rowing through treacle so it's less like rowing and more like doing repetitive deadlifts uh, but all of them add up rowing coastal rowing in particular weights injury prevention that's my life at the moment but yeah. i'm trying to take a bit of a break at christmas having done that round the island race <laughs> then plateau christmas few drinks and then january hit it hard again yeah, you will enjoy you. But this is this is fun actually to discover how your body is changing and adjusting to a new to a new routine actually. And mm, yeah. I, I well, I really I love it. I love yeah, the training. Fascinating. And are you also training for the cold, like some that kind of um, you know uh, cold bathing and uh, like everything that can mimic the, the the cold condition, handling the hand handling because you need to handle a lot with your hands. Yeah. Well, that's such an interesting thing you say because in a couple of days I'm doing a course with the you know the do you know the Wim Hof method? Ah uh, no no. Uh, so there's this guy Wim Hof who uh, uh, has created a 
a breathing method where he can control his heart rate so he can deal with extreme cold temperatures. I think he has the world record for swimming an hour in the Arctic or something like that. And he tried to climb Everest in just a pair of shorts and shoes. Um, uh, and I don't, he didn't get to the top, but he did get very high. And there are quite impressive YouTube clips of him getting up to the top of mountains in the middle of Polish winters, just in shorts and shoes. And it's all about breathing and using your breath and controlling your heart rate to control your body's physical response, not just so that you can deal with the cold, but then the added benefits of that are controlling your fight and flight syndrome uh, rather than panicking if you're dunked in the water and boosting your immune system. And there, there are like bafflingly good results um, about how people who have trained in this method are more immune to various diseases. And there's a guy in Hong Kong who's a trained Wim Hof oh, method oh. teacher and I'm doing a course with him on Saturday. So uh, I'll find out over the weekend, but uh, that it's like three hours of breathing exercises and then he just puts you in an ice bath and uh, see how long you last. But uh, aside from that, Hong Kong's probably not the best place to get uh, cold water training, but yes, I am uh, I'm asking because I was training to climb Mount Everest in Bangkok. So it's a bit similar. But I'm very good at dealing with the cold. Like it's never been a problem for me. I'm born and bred in Scotland, and you know, <laughs> I'm the kind of guy who will be walking around in in Scotland in December in shorts. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I want, but uh, <laughs> I would love to see what's uh, this training. If you can share about it, it's like you you training. Oh yeah, definitely. Wim Hof. Yeah. Well, I'm doing a story for oh. the SCMP. I do a monthly column for the the newspaper about uh, called the Arctic Rower, and uh, we are. Um, yeah, so the, on Saturday, I'll be interviewing the teacher and writing about my experience and how it helps me. And uh, hopefully, I won't need any of it because we won't go into the water. But the ocean rowing boats do occasionally capsize. Mm. Oh, wow. So you will, will you share your experience when you're on a boat? Do you plan to share your experience daily? Or how do you handle the, 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 the information sharing? Yeah, well, we've just been sponsored by a pretty like high-level um uh, satcom kind of thing um a company and uh, so we will be sharing from the arctic and what's more we've just managed to land successfully a documentary so at least for part of it we think we'll have uh, it will it depends on the budget etc but at least for part of it we'll have a boat uh, nearby filming us so maybe just a few days at the beginning and a few days at the end who will be able to send pictures uh, back mm -hmm. uh, so that's definitely one of the ways we want to share that's one of our like offerings to sponsors it's like there's not just going to be a before and after there'll be a during in terms of our constant stream of social media posts mm -hmm. but uh, that does require effort because like three days in you just cannot be like you cannot be bothered to do anything that isn't vital like eating and sleeping mm -hmm. and rowing yeah, so uh, we'll have to that. like be quite strict with ourselves in divvying up tasks on whose day it is to post a picture and upload mm -hmm. to social media it's strange. I mean, I don't know. Now that we've got this sponsor, it's going to be a lot easier. But in the art, in the Atlantic, you have a thing called a began, and you have to plug it into your iPad, put your iPad on began mode. Somebody has to hold it, and it goes like tick 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 when you find the satellite in the sky. Like, and then you turn the sound off, and you have to somebody has to hold it facing the satellite, and it is quite a palaver, which is all. Hmm. which which uh, on when you're on land you're oh, it only took us five minutes but when you're a sea i, I just can't be bothered to do this 
So <laughs> we're glad yeah. that we got this spot. Yeah, it's draining. It's draining, and uh, you, your mood is probably not focused on just uh, taking a picture. Something. Yeah, and although it is part of modern day ex expeditions, um, and the reason you, the way you fund it is for sponsors, and sponsors expect these things, so it's fair enough entirely. Um, it's also not why you go. Mm. You want to go and get away from these things, and then suddenly you're in the middle of the Arctic, expected to engage in them. Uh, it's a bit of a juxtaposition. But if you think, uh, I was always thinking that, okay, if I do that now, it's, 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 it's something for my own memories. Because mm. I, I cannot, when I was on expedition, I could not um, focus on the, on, on the happy, and, uh, happy enjoyment of what I was doing. And with us, when I was watching the pictures and the videos, I was like, oh, okay. So if we focus on, on us also, like later on, we would love to see those things, you know. Yeah, well, I find it quite easy to find, I, I quite easy to actually enjoy how much I'm hating it, if that makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> this um, is yeah, you're a journalist. Yeah, well, the guys I was enjoying, the, uh, the guys I rode around the island with, they were getting frustrated with me at the end, because by the end, when we were rowing into a headwind and everybody's knees were hurting, they were sort of making noises like, ah, ah, with every stroke, and I was like laughing, like, this is so much fun. <laughs> they're like, <laughs> they like are you not in pain i was like i'm in so much pain it's exactly what i signed up for yeah you signed up for pain actually yeah wow yeah but, but yeah in terms of recording it that's definitely yeah my job as a journalist so maybe it'll fall to me so how how many how many sponsors do you need to let i mean remaining sponsors do you need to um uh, well, it depends on the size of the sponsor. At the moment, well, what we need in total is three quarters of a million pounds, 750,000 pounds. Um, and as I said, our, uh, we've just got this documentary, so we think it's going to be a paradigm shift, you know, before we were collecting it in dribs and drabs. But now uh, we can legitimately go to somebody and say, for a quarter of a million pounds, you can have one of the whole boats. You know, we will cover the entire both in your colors and your logos and it's going to be on a very very big um mainstream channel for a long time which in time we hope will be sold to netflix so we have a real offering now and we hope that's going to be a paradigm shift but aside from that um we've also got a crowdfunding aspect to it which i know you mentioned before which is our, our gin oh i so love this project yeah it's so nice your gin project, please tell me about it. Yeah, well, whenever I say gin, people always think I'm saying gym. No, but I'm talking about gin and time. They're like, you, you started a gym? No, no, we started a gin, like a drink brand called Northwest Passage Expedition Gin um, for your favorite gin and tonics. And uh, yeah, it was one of the other guys' ideas and the credit really needs to go to one of the teammates called uh, Jack Hopkins for getting it off the ground. Within about seven weeks of coming up with the idea, we now own, we own a, a gin company. And uh, the story behind it is cool. Uh, in that 19th century period where a lot of British people were going to the Northwest Passage to look for Franklin, look, look for the passage and also to trade furs and with the local people, they, uh, uh, about 80 or 90% of them came from the Orkney Islands, which is just these small islands off the north coast of Scotland. Boats would leave London with just a few a few officers go up the east coast of britain stop in orkney stock up with water stock up with men and then go to the northwest passage um uh working for the hudson bay company or the northwest company so we we're 
distilling it in Orkney as a homage to all the uh, people from Orkney who came before us, including John Ray, who was the person who actually found the, the passage. Um, it is distilled with water from this ancient water source called Logan's Well, which was the well that Captain Cook and John Franklin used to stock their boats before they uh, headed off to explore. And uh, it's flavored with uh, botanicals from the Hudson Bay in the Northwest Passage and from Orkney as a, a link for both of them. And it's sort of, and one of them is sugar kelp, which is this seaweedy kind of stuff. So it's a bit salty, so it makes it a, a quite distinguishable gin. And everybody who's tried it so far has, has been very wax lyrical about it, which is good news. Uh, but, and it also it bears the logo of a, an NGO called Big Blue Ocean Cleanup, who we were going to collect a few samples for and try and support in our own way. Um, so it's, uh, it's very cool. And uh, I only got my first bottle the other day because uh, there's 100% import tax in Hong Kong. I wasn't able to get a big batch sent here. I had to get a friend to bring one across. And uh, yeah, I, I was bizarrely proud. I, I, you know, I just thought it was a means to an end, like let's get money for the Northwest Passage. But then I was holding this thing. I thought, you know, I, I helped create this. This is awesome. <laughs> I feel proud. <laughs> this is your brand. Yeah, it's yeah. nice. So how, how can we buy it actually? I asked you already and uh, it was a bit, so, so I couldn't get it. I have to order it from the UK, right? Or something. Yeah, well, unfortunately, as we are a new brand, yeah. the uh, it, it, we're finding it difficult to get it outside the UK. Like uh, like I say that in Hong Kong, for example, there's a hundred percent import tax. Mm -hmm. By the time it's shipped and taxed and stored, it's going to be like a, a, a thousand Hong Kong dollars a bottle here. So that we not no point in sending it. So at the moment, it's only available in the UK, mm -hmm. which is where most of the team is based but yeah certainly i have a lot of friends in asia who'd like it but if you do want to support i guess the only option is to buy for a friend who uh lives in the uk as a christmas present but mm -hmm. other than that uh, we have to wait until we're a more mature company before we work out how to export it across the world mm, yeah step by step i think you are busy enough working on the on the logistic and the physical preparation yeah. actually so how can people like me simple people help you actually well one of the the uh easiest ways um which it actually means a lot is introductions to corporates who you think would be interested you know a anybody who's listening and thinks of a company that they think will, will benefit from it then uh they can contact me or link me in with an email and uh it, it, when people always think of sponsors they always think of like the one that has the most obvious link they might think hey the north face that's an adventure brand why not you contact the North Face, but you know the as you know the benefits to sponsors are are far beyond the obvious. A wealth manager would benefit because you know the demographic that follow adventurers these days tend to be high net worth individuals who have like uh, uh, enough money to dream about it, um, and uh, so they would benefit from having their brand on the side of a boat and being beamed across the world in a documentary or. Uh, um, you know, or a law firm for similar reasons. Uh, all these sort of companies are, are ones that benefit. And it doesn't have to be one of the two quarter, a quarter of a million pound sponsors. It can be much, much smaller. Um, and uh, those introductions are just are so useful because cold calls are so, so, so unlikely to actually elicit any kind of response, let alone a sponsorship. Yeah, it's very hard. Mm. Yeah, I really, I really hear you. Yeah, yeah, it's um, um, an endless series of no's. If you want any mental training for resilience to push through, 
the lows of the Arctic, I suggest you try and fundraise and then you'll get used to uh, being blocked at every turn. <laughs> Probably this is the trickiest part of the, of the full mission, actually. Yeah, people say that getting to the start line is the hardest bit of ocean rowing. And I want also to say that uh, if people are listening to us, that they can just share it and just spread the word and talk about your expedition. Mm, definitely. Yeah. The more or, we share about it, the more we talk about it, the more like, we are likely to find sponsors. Yeah, exactly. Sponsors always come out of left field, the most random places that you never expect. Wow, yeah. So now... I'm just wondering, did I cover like did I cover enough about this project? Did I miss something about the project actually? Uh, I don't think so. We covered a lot, what it is, what we're doing, the challenges we'll face. It's all just very, very exciting. Every time I do talk about it, I've done a few interviews. I end up wishing it was tomorrow. <laughs> oh, I believe it. Yeah, I really, yeah. I really understand. Wow. Yeah, it's really exciting. I mean, I've wanted to do, I've wanted to be the first to row the Northwest Passage for a, for a long time, having read all about it. And mm. um, even before I tried to row the Atlantic, it, it would, my ultimate aim was just to get across the Atlantic to build up enough experience to be uh, for somebody who would row the Northwest Passage to, uh, to allow me on their team or to organize my own team. And um, to actually have it happening in the end even though it's six or seven months away and there's a lot of hurdles to get through between now and then is is surreal yeah, and surreal, i think it's yeah. going to be even more surreal when i'm in the middle of the arctic and i think jesus i've been thinking about this for a long long time <laughs> yeah I, I can believe like it's like all like uh, the, the sparkling everywhere like it, it's it's happening yeah yeah that's mm -hmm. that's so awesome well i'm i'm really happy to talk about uh, expeditions yeah Thank you. Talk about it all day. Thank you for sharing that with me. And yeah, I'm just, uh, I'm so curious to see all those, uh, all those preparation posts too. I will follow that on your Facebook page. And mm. Yeah, yeah. I'll keep yeah. sharing. <laughs> yeah, keep sharing, please. And make us dream. I will. Yeah. Hopefully time. a bit of light at the end of the tunnel for Northwest Passage. People to get excited about something in the year of coronavirus. Uh. Yeah, yeah. So let's keep dreaming and let's keep uh, let's keep doing our our yeah our projects and follow our passion. Actually, this is the most important thing. Never give up. Huh? Never give up. That mm, that exactly. probably will be my last uh, last comment. Is just uh, we never give up on our dreams. Yeah. Well, I'm happy to finish on that. <laughs> How inspiring! So thank you very much for listening to this uh, conversation with Mark and. Uh, if you want to support uh, his expedition and uh, also follow the updates, you can check the expedition uh, website, nwp2021.com. Or you can have a look also at his uh, Facebook page, Northwest Passage 2021. I also recommend to have a look at his uh, expedition gene website this is quite quite good so northwest passage expedition gin.com and i guarantee that uh, you will be really surprised to see uh, this product so please uh, try to spread the words and just uh, support this uh, expedition as much as uh, as you can thank you